Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, and welcome to NJSA's podcast program, School Law Today, part of our uh, conversations on New Jersey education. My name is Ray Penny. I'll be your host for this afternoon's program. Uh, today, we'll be talking about uh, teacher tenure. Uh, before we do that, if you want to call in and ask a question, all you have to do is dial one three four seven. 989-8904 and press 1 and Mike who's working our switchboard will uh, get your question uh, your name and then we will put you on or if you want you can log into our chat room and there's no charge for logging on to the chat room and you can type in a question I will pass it on to our uh, our guest uh, today's guest uh, as I said earlier we were talking about uh, we'll be talking about teacher tenure uh, in 2012, we had passed something called uh, Teach NJ, which was a reform of the tenure law. And with us is Brenda Liss. Brenda is a uh, partner in the law firm of Riker, Danzig, Scherer, Hyland, and Peretti. Uh, she's been practicing in the area of education law for uh, over 25 years, representing public school districts across the state. Uh, and her office is in uh, Morristown. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, Brenda, uh, let's kind of get to it. In 2012, as I mentioned earlier, TEACH-NJ, which you can tell us what the uh, acronym stands for, was passed as a part of a tenure reform uh, by the state legislature. What, what, is the, what were the main components of that? Well, first of all, TEACH-NJ is an acronym. It stands for Teacher Effectiveness and Accountability for the Children of New Jersey Act, but we all refer to it as TEACHNJ. Uh, according to the, the legislature, a specific section of the statute, it said that it was adopted for the express purpose of improving instruction in three ways, through performance evaluations that are supposed to provide specific feedback to teachers, Secondly, to use those evaluations for the provision of professional development. And thirdly, for those evaluations to inform personnel decisions. And those decisions specifically are the grant of tenure that evaluations are supposed to be used for and the removal of tenure from any tenured teachers that are not performing up to the standards set by their school districts, by their employers. All right. Um and there were, uh, the law kind of gives guidelines through the evaluation process. Uh, when or uh, on what basis can tenure charges be brought? Well, uh, TeachNJ did not change the basic provision for the grounds for tenure charges, both before and after TeachNJ. Tenure charges can be brought against a tenured teaching staff member for inefficiency, incapacity, unbecoming conduct, or other just cause. Those are all terms of art, as we lawyers say. Those are the bases for tenure charges. Um, the ground of inefficiency specifically affected by TeachNJ. Tenure charges of inefficiency are now mandatory under TeachNJ. Whenever a teacher has had an uh, annual evaluation for two years with a rating of ineffective or a partially effective rating in one year, followed by an ineffective rating in the second consecutive year, or uh, under some circumstances, a charge will be mandatory. That is, an inefficiency tenure charge will be mandatory, but may be deferred for one year 
if there is a finding of exceptional circumstances, and we could talk about what exceptional circumstances means, but that whole concept applies if a teacher doesn't have two years of ineffective, but they have two years of partially effective ratings, or if they have ineffective rating and then partially effective in the second consecutive year. So you have to look at two years of performance to determine if a charge is mandatory. And if it meets one of those conditions, uh, there is no choice. It has to be filed against the teacher. And, and that is definitely new because prior to this, it was the determination of the, the administration. Correct. That's absolutely true. Yes, it was much more within the discretion of a school administrator, right? But now it's mandatory if those conditions are met. Okay, so so say a teacher has those uh, circumstances where they're ineffective and part or ineffective and partially ineffective. What you mentioned exceptional circumstances. What right. what's an exceptional circumstance where they can still be granted tenure? Well, the the Department of Education's guidance is that it's there's a lot of discretion given to a school district if you've got two years of partially effective or ineffective followed by partially effective. I don't read the law to provide that much discretion. I think it is that it's mandatory unless there's really something unusual where it would really be unjust or unfair to the employee to bring a tenure charge against them. We don't have a lot of guidance yet in case law. Uh, there was one decision where an arbitrator said, uh, the fact that a teacher is almost effective, that is based on the rating score that they got, that they are almost at the point of being effective in that second year, the arbitrator said that's not good enough. That doesn't count as exceptional circumstances for deferring a mandatory tenure charge of inefficiency. So exactly what would be exceptional circumstances? You know, I think if there is a really sympathetic story, if we hear that something happened to the teacher during probably the second of the two years, that is their excuse, so to speak, for getting that partially effective rating, but they still got that rating, uh, then a, a superintendent or the administrator who's going to be responsible for this can say, look, let's give the person another chance. So it couldn't be anything like... Uh they're a physics teacher, and we can't find physics teachers. It really has to be something probably dealt with specifically for that teacher and not to anything else. That's what I would advise, although we don't have a lot of guidance on that. Um, and I should also mention uh, the tenure now is acquired after four years. Uh, four years, essentially four years in a day. There are still three ways in regular public school districts. It is different in charter schools, but in regular public school districts, where it used to be three years in a day or three full academic years or the equivalent of three years within four years, everything that used to be three changes to four and everything that used to be four changes to five. So it's the basic one is four years in a day results in tenure. But during those four years, there is also a requirement for effective or highly effective evaluations within the first four years for a, a teaching staff member. They have to receive at least two years of effective evaluation in order to get tenure. So the, the the evaluation process is what drives much of this decision, which it did before, but I think now it forces the hand a little bit more. Right, right. Now it's much more explicit, and you you really do have to be certain to conduct those evaluations and look at what those ratings are before you decide whether or not someone is going to get tenure. Yeah. Um, what's the 
and I don't know when no staff, no administration, the board uh, really likes to go into tenure cases. But if someone was going to uh, file, if you want to go into uh, the procedure for tenure charges uh, for inefficiency, uh, what are what's the procedure? Well, yeah, nobody ever really wants to do this. Nobody really wants to be faced with a situation where a teacher's performance is so uh, poor that you feel as if it's necessary. But I always have to keep in mind, and the administrators who I've worked with who have done this have kept in mind that it's for the good of the kids. Yes, it may be an unpleasant situation, and it may really have terrible impact on the employee's career. On the other hand, if this person really is performing that poorly, you want to get them out of the classroom. So how do you do that? Mm -hmm. The first thing is that uh, we prepare two documents, the Notice of Tenure Charge of Inefficiency, which is a short sort of pleading. It looks like a complaint filed in a court case, uh, which informs the employee that they are being charged with inefficiency. The second one is the Statement of Evidence, and that's also a pleading, but it's basically a list of all the evidence that's going to support the charge when we get to a hearing, a list of all the documents that go into that determination that the person was two years of ineffective or partially effective. So it's mainly the observations, the evaluations, the corrective action plan, any memos or emails or anything like that that the administration believes support their position that the teacher's performance was not effective. So all of that needs to be gathered in order to attach it to the statement of evidence, which will be prepared for the board by the board attorney. Um, those documents are given to the employee. The employee has an opportunity to respond in writing, and once they do, the charge and all the evidence and the employee's response are presented to the Board of Education. The board looks at it and only needs to consider whether the evaluation process was followed. It doesn't have to decide, in fact, whether the teacher was a bad teacher or performed up to the standards of their uh, supervisors and administrators, only whether the process was filed, followed. If the process was followed, the charge must be filed with the Commissioner of Education. That just means sent in. If the Then the Commissioner or someone in the Commissioner's office in the Bureau of Controversies and Disputes looks at the charge. Again, the determination at that point is just whether the evaluation process has been followed. If the determination is that it was followed, the Commissioner sends the charge to an arbitrator and there's a panel of 50 arbitrators who are available for these hearings, um, that arbitrator will conduct a hearing. They'll, they'll call the attorneys on the case, they'll schedule a hearing, um, and at the hearing the board will present all of that evidence through those witnesses that are the people who were uh, involved with the observation and evaluation process. Um, and the employee can present whatever evidence they have, and usually that's their, their own view of the situation of why they believe they are an effective teacher. Um, and there's a lot of legal wrangling, and the arbitrator ultimately will make a decision, issue a written decision on whether or not the teacher should be uh, kept or dismissed from their position. And, who, and uh, what are the qualifications of, what, uh, of an arbitrator? 
They mm-hmm. don't have Besides to be a lawyer, cases. for one thing. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. one of the issues that some of us have raised. Um, a lot of these cases involve very technical legal issues, but the arbitrators are not judges. They're not lawyers. They are experienced labor arbitrators. Um, they must be members of the AAA labor arbitration panel, and they must be members of the National Academy of Arbitrators. So they all are experienced arbitrators. They don't all necessarily have experience in education or in the law, uh, but they, you know, they're not novices either. Uh, but sometimes it takes some effort to educate them, certainly about Teach NJ, sometimes about schools in general, and sometimes about the legal issues that are presented to them. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when you were talking about what the arbitrator looks at, they looked that district followed the process correctly, and that's very important. They can't decide whether that evaluation, they agree with that evaluation of the evaluation that the administration had, right? Right. I, I should have mentioned they are also not school administrators, and they don't, um, second guess. They're not permitted to second guess the judgment of the administrators. They can't say, well, I think they were an okay teacher if an administrator says they were not an okay teacher. Um, they are only permitted to look at a few things that are explicitly listed in the statute that may be presented as defenses to a tenure charge of inefficiency. And one of them is not that the teacher believes that they did a good job, even though the administrators said they did not. Um, they're only supposed to look at four things, um, the, and these four things are listed in the statute. First is whether, and again, the same thing that the board and the commissioner looked at, whether the administration adhered to the evaluation process. The procedural compliance is the first and the most common of the four available defenses. Everybody will always try to say you didn't substantially comply with the procedural requirements. Secondly, whether there's a mistake of fact, did somebody just get something wrong? And sometimes that's you know, not just they put the wrong person's name on the evaluation document, but that they didn't calculate the evaluation rating properly. It doesn't happen that often, but once in a while it does happen, and sometimes those calculations get pretty complicated, so I could see how it could happen. Thirdly, that the charge has been motivated by some improper motivation, like discrimination or retaliation or union animus, that there's something behind this other than the teacher's actual poor performance. And fourth, the catch-all, arbitrary and capricious. The arbitrator can look at whether or not the evaluation or any part of it was, quote, arbitrary and capricious, which basically just means that there was some unfairness to it or something didn't make sense. It really could encompass a whole lot of things that amount to it being arbitrary and capricious. Um, And then if the arbitrator finds any of those four defenses, any facts to support any of those four defenses, he or she is supposed to look at whether or not the facts that amount to those defenses materially affected the outcome of the evaluation, and that's the language of the statute too, whether it materially affected the outcome, so that even if it was based on a mistake of fact, well, would the rating ended have, have ended up the same anyway? So even if they calculated the evaluation rating wrong, would it still have come out to be ineffective? 
and would the charge have been mandatory anyway, that kind of thing. Or if something was arbitrary, if something was done that really was arbitrary, well, would the outcome have been the same anyway? The arbitrator is supposed to look at that. And if there was no material effect on the outcome, they're supposed to uphold the charge. But if it if any of the defenses are proven and they're cho- shown to have a material effect, the arbitrator is supposed to dismiss the charge and send the teacher back to work. I, I would say, I mean, from the for the district and the administration, and the board has to make sure this happens too, is that you need to make sure that the process, the evaluation process is followed uh, strictly because that seems to be the one area that would be, if you're going to make a mistake, you know, uh, unless someone makes this, does have improper motivation and it's in an email or something. But I would think that that the process that te- uh, that the staff, the school district uses for evaluation, is really important. Yes, absolutely. Um, and often, you know, we see that mistakes are made, procedural errors are made, and that has led to the dismissal of some tenure charges in some of the reported decisions that we have. Um, the the statute itself and the Department of Education regulations under TeachNJ have very detailed procedural requirements for observations and evaluations and the corrective action plans that are required. Any teacher that has one year of ineffective or partially effective has to be given a corrective action plan, and the requirements for that are very detailed and explicit in the regulations. So there are lots of opportunities to... Uh, fail to comply with the procedural requirements. Lots of things for employees to latch on to if they're looking to find some kind of uh, failure to comply. So you really do have to be able to you have to be able to document that you have complied with all those requirements. Yes. Okay. Uh, and I know that we're and when this was passed, I think one of the selling points to uh, the school community is that this would be a faster procedure. Uh, how long does all this take? Well, according to the statute, um, once a case is received by the commissioner and reviewed and sent to the arbitrator, the arbitration hearing is supposed to start within 45 days and then be completed and, and get a decision from the arbitrator within 45 days of when the hearing started. That is much faster than tenure charge cases took under the old process where the case was referred to an administrative law judge. You got an initial decision after a hearing, and those hearings sometimes went on for months or even longer. Um, And then it would go back to the commissioner for a final decision. With this arbitration process, those timeframes are in there, and the arbitrators make an effort to comply with them. But in many cases, because of scheduling and because the hearings last a few days themselves, they often have to get an extension of time from the commissioner. And those extensions have been granted pretty liberally by the commissioner's office. So... I can't tell you that the process only takes 45 and then another 45 days. It's probably twice that on average. But it's not years. It's weeks, months before you get a decision. And that's once it goes to the arbitrator from the commissioner. Uh, The process leading up to the commissioner is another several weeks by the time it's all done. And preparing the charge itself is some effort and takes some time by the administration. Now, it would seem that if you're preparing all this and you give the uh, 
uh, what do you call it, the notice of tenure charge and the statement of evidence to a, a teacher. Uh, anecdotally, I've heard that there seems to be some teachers may not you may not have tenure charges, but they may just resign. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that something that you have heard too, or? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, while we've had quite a few arbitration decisions where the process has gone all the way to the end, uh, many teachers who are facing mandatory tenure charges of inefficiency choose not to go through that process. You know, they know what the law is as well. They are well advised by their lawyers who typically are appointed by their unions. And, you know, they see the same decisions we do, and they can see the same provisions in the statute that we have, and they choose not to go through that process because while it's not pleasant for us, it's certainly not pleasant for them. And unless they think they have pretty strong grounds for one of those four defenses, I think very often they are advised that they might as well just resign. The outcome will be the same but a lot easier for them. So um, they, I, well, my experience both with having prepared a lot of these cases and served them and also with the data that we have from the Department of Education is that we have many more teachers, we have had since 2012, many more teachers who could have had charges brought against them than the ones that were actually brought, that many of them choose to resign before the formal filing of the charges, yes. So, uh, and that's from your experience too, is that, um, and I guess that's another reason that, you might want to put a lot of time and effort into making sure that your process is correct uh, mm-hmm. and that you follow, you know, dot all the I's and cross all the T's because it may save you time down the road because it may not even go to the arbitrator. It may, right, right. you know, right. quietly a lot, a lot of your case, Yeah, a lot of your case is completed without ever going to the hearing. It's completed when you've got the documentation together and either you – you know, you could send it to the person or send it to the union attorney and say, this is what we've got. Or or sometimes you don't even have to do that. You just inform them somehow that we are prepared to go ahead with this and uh, present it to them in a way where they know that you've been gathering this information over the course of the last year or two based on two years' performance. And you're prepared. You're ready to go. You've got it all together uh, unless they choose not to do that, and that's up to them. Um, say a teacher still wants to fight it. And I just want to reiterate for our listeners that we're really only talking about inefficiency. We're not getting into other areas where teachers can have tenure uh, charges brought up. Um, uh, you know, how how many of them, how many, you know, do you, are there any numbers as to how many teachers have fought this and what's the success rate for the teachers or the school districts if it goes to the, the arbitrator in the end? Um, last fall, the Department of Education published a report with its um, evaluation of the TeachNJ implementation process and it had some data in there, and that was the second time they had published this kind of report. So we have two annual reports now from the Department of Education regarding implementation of TeachNJ. And the one that, and it's available online, the one that was published last fall reported that, well, first of all, um, they say that the vast majority of teachers who 
are not meeting an acceptable level of proficiency have left the profession prior to charges mm-hmm. being filed. So vast majority, you know, they don't, I, I don't know exactly what they mean by that. Um, they do say in another part of the report, almost one-third of teachers who received an evaluation of ineffective or partially effective in one year uh, left are no longer teaching in the district where they were. Again, I don't know what they mean by almost one-third, but that's a pretty big percentage, and that's, that's just a after one year. Number. So, that's right. I mean, our retention rate in general for tenured teachers is way better than two-thirds. Uh, if among those who are ineffective or partially effective, almost one-third leave after just one year, the law has been pretty effective. The other number they have in terms of charges that have actually been filed and then go to hearing and then we actually get a decision, uh, what they've, the, their count is that of the 22 inefficiency tenure charge cases that have been heard by arbitrators since 2015, so they don't go all the way back to 2012, but since 2015, so that's about two years' worth of cases. They say there are 22 inefficiency tenure charge decisions, and of those 22, 17 resulted in the teacher's tenure being revoked. So school districts have won 17 out of 22 cases that have been reported decisions where it went all the way through to the whole, all the way through to the end of the process. So pretty good record, not perfect, but pretty good for those cases that have gotten that far. That does not take into account all those teachers who resigned before they got to that process. So if you count all those, uh, I think uh, the percentage is pretty high. uh, Just for me, and I remember 2012 when this was being discussed, if I'm, Recall correctly, I thought we were going to need a lot of arbitrators because they felt that they were going to be overrun. That doesn't seem like a whole lot of number of cases, actually. That's right. Yeah, I think everybody's been surprised that we have not had more cases than this. But if you take into account both those teachers who have resigned before we even get this far um, and the fact that, you know, honestly, I bet that some administrators are rating people effective even if they're borderline or they're rating if they get a partially effective rating in one year they rate them partially effective again and then they choose they exercise that discretion not to bring a charge after mm-hmm. two partially effective years because the department's guidance suggests that they can do that even though i say exceptional circumstances should be it should be considered very narrowly um, we're not seeing as many cases being brought as everybody expected. And uh, and everybody acknowledges that, including the department. We don't know why exactly not as many cases have been brought. But bear in mind also that number of 22 is reported decisions since 2015. That's only two years' worth, I think, by the time this report was published in the fall of 2017. So 11 reported cases a year for those that have gone all the way through the process. That's what we've got. Uh, from your uh, experience, what would be like uh, a reason that the uh, uh, charge of inefficiency wouldn't be successful, and what advice would you have for boards in that area? And not just boards, the well, whole administration. Um, I mean, if they have a teacher with two years of ineffective, I would say that 
the word mandatory, you know, it says shall, the statute says you shall promptly file. You don't have a choice. You have to prepare your case, put together the notice of tenure charge, and begin the process, whether you've got a strong case or not, because that's what the law requires. Of course, we hope that the case would be strong, and so I would recommend that anybody, any administrator who has a teacher with one year of partially effective or ineffective evaluation, should the administrator should begin to look forward to the end of the next year where they may have two years of ineffective or partially effective and begin putting together the documentation, preparing to have to compile a statement of evidence at the end of that second year so that all through that second year, you're making sure that all the procedural requirements are being followed, the correct number of observations are being conducted, the corrective action plan is being developed and then implemented in according with its terms, you know, all the homework has to be done all through that whole second year, not just all the way at the end, because all the way at the end, if it's mandatory, it's mandatory, and you have to present it. If you think you don't have a very good case, like in any case, the recommendation sometimes from your board attorney is going to be settle. Settle the case. See what we can do to achieve our end, even without going through the whole process of litigation. Um, and that's something that, of course, every situation has to be evaluated on its own merits. Okay, uh, that brings us to the end of this program. Uh, we have like 30 seconds left. Uh, I want to thank you, Brenda, for uh, Brenda List from uh, uh, Riker, Danzig, uh, Cher Highland, and Peretti. Uh, thank you for joining us. And if anyone has any questions, uh, they can email me, and I'll send them on to Brenda. So thank you, Brenda. Thank you very much, Ray. Happy to do it. Thanks. It Bye-bye. went pretty fast. <laughs> so. Uh, Thank you. Okay, and everyone have a good afternoon.